I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2007. That was back in the days when we were recording interviews on cassette tape. And there was a point towards the end of the interview when the tape had to be flipped and a few moments of the conversation were actually lost. Despite that and a couple of other technical imperfections, I think this is an interesting interview which is worth hearing again. I hope you enjoy it. I hold in my hands a very interesting book with a very interesting title called Darwin's Gift to Science and Religion. This is a book which uh, seeks to introduce what might be to some people uh, a, a revolutionary and to some people might even seem like an absurd concept, namely that uh, the scientific uh, breakthroughs of, of Charles Darwin might not in fact be uh, so incompatible uh, with a, a more standard traditional religious view of the origins of, of the universe. Uh, at least that is what su- is suggested by the book's author, uh, Francisco J. Ayala, university professor and the Donald Brain Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of California, uh, Irvine. This book is published by Joseph Henry Press, again called Darwin's Gift to Science and Religion. And uh, Professor Francisco Ayala, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you. Good morning. One of the things that I think is very interesting about your book, apart from that sort of central question of Darwinism and religion and so on, is that you really help us understand uh, so much more about what science is all about and the way in which science works. And I I would like to uh, begin by having you talk about sort of the two phases of scientific inquiry, which uh, you think we don't always remember and, and appreciate, namely the, the first being more imaginative or creative and the other than critical. Tell our listeners what I'm talking about. Well, science always starts with some, some idea of what might be truth, what we call a hypothesis. Uh, take Darwin, that uh, evolution may happen by natural selection. Then one has to go to the world of experience, to the observations and experiments, to test that idea. So this is the, the critical phase. Now, contrary to what uh, at first might seem right, what a good scientist does is not trying to prove it's very correct, but trying to prove it false. It, in other words, you look for evidence that is likely to contradict the hypothesis, because then you fail to find evidence against your hypothesis, you are confirming it. Uh, and better that you find the it is evidence against your hypothesis, but to find it yourself first rather than pushing the idea and being rejected by other scientists. So the dialogue always continues. Now, of course, this is an oversimplified picture of what is goes on because uh, hypotheses expand and, uh, and eventually knowledge builds up into theories, like the theory of evolution. By theory, scientists usually mean a body of knowledge which involves... Uh, many hypotheses usually well confirmed, as well as all the facts and observations that support that hypothesis and sets of hypotheses. Mm. And of course, always things which are in progress, which are still not known. Mm. So what, one of the things you talk about in your book is that some scientists seem to be reluctant to uh, own the first part of this process, namely that sort of that imaginative or creative leap which one must take in terms of, of, of having an idea, a hypothesis, 
and then going about to uh, to critically prove or disprove it. But but that some scientists and and I think Darwin was one of them uh, didn't like to characterize their work in that in that in that fashion. Uh, I- explain to us how Darwin talked about his work, and in particular how he seemed to shy away from talking about this first phase of of of, of scientific inquiry. Yeah, with what was going on in in England and in the United States and in many parts of the world in the middle of the 19th century was uh, the notion that the way you do science is by observing and accumulating observations. This technically called induction. So that you look at a tree and you find that it has leaves and you look at another tree has leaves and come to the conclusion all trees have leaves. Well, that's a very, a very naive uh, example, but to to put the idea forward, now uh, Darwin, in his correspondence, thought that this was, of course, wrong. He says, "How could not people see that uh, that you can not make observations unless they are in support or to contradict some idea?" Um, yet, at the beginning of the Origin of Species, he claims that this, what he had been doing started without any prejudices to make observations for many, many years. That was published in 1859. In 1837, in his uh, notebooks, we now know that he had already come for, upon the idea of natural selection and then dedicated the next 20 years or so to, to try to disprove it, which is a way of proving it, of corroborating it. Hmm. So he, uh, sort of his official stance was that that. I just looked at the world for years and years and years, and it gradually became very evident to me that this is how we got here, when in fact you're, we can look at his notebooks and we know that in fact he kind of took this leap with this hypothesis and then spent years uh, going after that, trying, trying to prove that. Uh, so it played out completely differently from the way he described yeah, that's correct. In, and he did so as not to antagonize the prevailing way of thinking of his time that he thought was wrong, and, and it was wrong to say, because scientists in general, we accept that you start with a hypothesis or a theory of some sort and, and move from there to observe what you want to observe or to design the experiment you, to design, you want to design. Um, so anyway, he, he just didn't want to antagonize uh, his fellow scientists, and particularly the philosophers and thinkers who were very prevailing in, in mid-19th-century England. Hmm. Well, of course, the heart and soul of your book is that uh, you hold that uh, someone who would like to believe that the hand of a creator god is really the, what, what, what brought us into being and, and formed us, that that idea of the world and its origins is not as incompatible with Darwin as it might immediately appear to be on the surface. How do you reconcile the two? Well, um, two sides to, to my response. The first one, which is, would be better given by a theologian rather than by myself, that in the same way that I can see the presence of God in myself, uh, without denying that I was conceived from in my mother's womb from an egg which was fertilized by an sperm and that cell divided into two into four, then a baby was born, and so on. 
in the same way the presence of God in the world can be accepted by people of faith without denying the natural processes. That's the one, the one side. The other side is that, in fact, that view of the world as how it's coming about by natural process is much more compatible with the notion of the monotheistic religions that we have a personal God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and benevolent, because the, the world of life is so full of uh, dysfunctions and cruelty and misery uh, and even sadism that those who propone, they are arguing that God specifically designed uh, living organisms as, as they are, they are implicitly, obviously that's not what they mean, but they are implicitly accusing God of being incompetent or being a sadist. Uh, so it's, uh, Darwin made it possible for us to explain those dysfunctions and, and cruelties and sadism as a consequence of natural processes. Is that they don't need to be attributed to a specific design of the creation. So uh, one way that we can characterize this, and you talk about this in the book, is that some people looked at the world around them or looked at, for instance, human beings and something as wondrous as the human eye and pointed to, I mean, the almost miraculous perfection of some of that and said, uh, this is evidence that an omnipotent and omniscient God created us, that, that, that this could not possibly be some kind of accident. I mean, it is, it is a miracle that we have these wonderful eyes that work so well. What you are saying is that uh, unfortunately, the closer we look at the world, at its creatures, or at ourselves, uh, the more we see little flaws, and sometimes not so little flaws. And then for the person who believes uh, that, that, uh, that an omniscient being brought all of this into being in an instant, then they have to explain the presence of that. And that can be exceedingly difficult. That's correct, and you put it very well. Uh, even in the human eye, uh, we have some notable imperfections. One of them is that the optical nerve, that is the nerve that uh, picks up all the information from our retina and has to transfer that information to the brain, because that optical nerve is formed inside the eye. It has to cross the retina in order to reach the brain. So we have a blind spot um, curiously enough, uh, octopuses don't have that defect. Octopuses have eyes just about as complex as ours. It evolved, originated, originated completely independently, and but the same kinds of parts, you know, the lens, the cornea, the, the retina, the, the optic nerve, and the, and the like, uh, all came about very, very similarly as in, as in humans and in other animals. But in their case, the optical nerve is formed from the outside, so it does not have the defect. Um, in when we are on the matter of the eye, uh, mollusks, which are clams, oysters, and squids, um, which are an older group of organisms than vertebrates. Vertebrates are the fishes, the reptiles, and us, and mammals. Um, the uh, mollusks uh, have all the stages of evolution of the eye. We, you can see it see them in living mollusks from just a few pigmented cells in some very simple mollusks to gradually more complex eyes until the one of the octopuses. So we can see how a complex 
organ can come step by step. Um, and if I may take one more moment to re respond to your question, mm -hmm. uh, in the matter of imperfections, take the birth canal of humans. It's too small for the head of the baby, so that millions of innocent babies, uh, you know, have died in innocent infants at childbirth because of this defect of the sign. Um, I don't think we should blame the creator for the defect. Natural selection is clumsy. Natural selection, that is, evolution does not achieve perfection, achieves uh, usefulness, adaptation. But um, So we can explain quite well in evolution why the birth canal is too small for the head, better that, to do it that way than blaming God as it were for the design. Hmm. <laughs> it's intriguing because in your book, as we have this explained to us, you take some time to, for instance, let's return to the human eye. You, you help us understand how tempting it was for people to look at the eye and see only this thing of miraculous near perfection because you point out some of the things about the eye, uh, apart from the obvious, which, which really do make it quite a wondrous thing. Uh, just explain for a moment a, a couple of those things about the human eye, not the flaws, which we had just talked about, but some of the things which really make it extraordinary. Well, um, we, we have uh, a, a lens, uh, say, like uh, a telescope or a microscope would have, and we have a, in, in two, two different kinds of fluids inside the eye, uh, which allow the eye to correct for what is called the optic distortion. See, me telescope makers for years were trying to find uh, ways of correcting for this uh, distortion, which is a kind of color that comes at the edge of the object that you are looking. When you look through a single lens to, to the stars or to something uh, microscopic that you want to enlarge, and then uh, a, a telescope maker discovered just in the 18th century uh, that the eye corrected for this by having two different fluids, so to speak, two different uh, kinds of uh, objects through which the light goes. And that allows for that correction, and this has corrected in, in telescopes and microscopes. Hmm. Uh, so that was, a, a, I mean, like so many other things in, in the world of life, uh, that uh, through this process of natural selection, things have become uh, wonderful, useful. I mean, we have the, the human hands exquisitely designed for holding objects, and we can handle large objects, small objects, we feel temperature, we the, the surface, um, and so on for every part. But, but these things can be well explained by evolution through natural selection, and the process also allows us to explain the imperfections, the gross imperfections. Hmm. So it is possible, then, for someone of, of faith, of, who, who adheres to religious faith, it is possible for them... Uh, you are suggesting in your book to embrace the idea that that God created the world and created us through a, a process which God created, uh, namely this natural process of of, of natural selection. 
that that would be the means or, or the tool. Or, of course, one might not believe any of that at all. I mean, might not believe that, that a supreme being had a hand in that. But if one does feel drawn to that belief or compelled to believe that, it is your view that it is possible to believe all of it, in a sense. Oh, absolutely. And um, it seems to me unfortunate that some people of faith see science as the enemy because science is one of the great pillars of our society, as religion is. And we shouldn't see them in contradiction. They are complementary uh, for people of faith. Uh, religion is, is very important in their lives. And religion gives them meaning and purpose and and allows them to have values, moral and otherwise. Uh, on the other hand, science has nothing to say about those matters. Science can neither prove nor disprove the existence of God. It simply cannot say anything, uh, anything about the meaning or purpose of life or about values. Um, I think it's a, how should I put it, a strategic mistake for people of faith to see support for their faith in science. I think they can have their faith, have inspiration for their faith in the marvelous diversity of the living world, but not trying to prove uh, the existence of God or their religious values with science. Um, I think we should uh, have our religious beliefs grounded on faith and revelation, not on science. But it is possible to accept science and, and be religious. Uh, I don't remember in your book if you ever state this as such, and I don't know if, if you would even welcome the question, but are you writing about this um, compatibility from the, the personal perspective of someone who embraces that themselves? Or, or are you writing more objectively here? Or is it a little of both? <laughs> Probably a little of both. I, I try to make it appear objective. That is, that is completely independent of what I may or may not think. That uh, personally, in terms of my own religious beliefs. Um, so the purpose of the book is to show what, to, that this compatibility between uh, science and religion, also trying to explain how science, and particularly evolution, works and give an understanding to uh, people who have, uh, may not have a very extensive scientific education, something which is very important because evolution is uh, central to understand biology today. It's also central to understand medicine and agriculture. Um, but uh, once again, to go into the, the gist of your question, I, I try to be objective. I am trying to say, you know, this is the way things are. What, what my religious faith is or isn't is not particularly significant. The compatibility between science and, and faith is, uh, is there. And I, as you uh, may remember, I um, criticize those scientists who think that they because as much as I criticize the so-called creationists or proponents of intelligent design that try to justify 
the religious faith in, in the world of science, hmm. knowledge. You're saying two things here. You're saying that you don't like scientists that look to science to, to disprove the existence of God in the same way that, that you don't like it when people look at, at science to, to somehow uh, bolster their, their ideas of, of intelligent design. We're talking about two different systems here. And the mixing of the two uh, can sometimes be done in, in, in maybe unfortunate ways. Yeah, very much uh, so. I, I think that uh, these are two extreme views which in a way have the same presupposition, which I take it to be wrong, that uh, we can find evidence for God and for religious faith in the, in the world, in, in the natural world, of, as, as studied by science. Um, I think that mistake is done uh, by both the proponents of intelligent design on one side and scientists who are materialists, uh, who, who, as I said earlier, fortunately are minority. It seems at least those who are outspoken materialists. Um, you know, science, once again, can neither prove nor disprove the existence of God, cannot prove nor disprove the validity of our religious faith. Um, it is better to keep these two pillars of society separate uh, in this sense, science and religion. There should be a, a dialogue in the sense that I have tried to explain in the book, seeing, seeing them as compatible rather than contradictory, but not one um, serving as the foundation of the other. Hmm. The book again is called Darwin's Gift to Science and Religion. Uh, it's published by Gen uh, Joseph Henry Press and the author, uh, Professor Francisco Ayala. Professor Ayala, I really found your book very intriguing and uh, also our conversation about it. I thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.